You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody, and welcome to the Third Cup of Coffee. My name is Randy Bolander. Glad to have you with us. We have audio from Sunday, July 4th at the bridge. We were in part three of our series on miracles, particularly talking about miracles that Jesus did, but people had to wait for, which is just an interesting thought in itself. I start out with talking a little bit about how we regard our nation, because it was, of course, the 4th of July. A lot of angst among pastors about how to address this, what do they say, and I think it's because we try and make things too general. The idea of America and what America has done over the years are not exactly the same thing. And when you see people who are patriotic to a point that you become uncomfortable, they're generally not celebrating those darker times. I think this is far more nuanced than most people have made it. Give it a listen, and we'd love to see you at the bridge sometime. It's interesting. Uh, just a couple of quick thoughts on the 4th of July and uh, our nation and the church's response to all this. Extremists on the both sides of the political aisle have made it hard to talk about uh, your nation and how you feel about your nation in a church context. And uh, there's a lot of anxiety about it. Uh, I have never seen people more nervous than pastors on Twitter this week talking about whether or not they talk about it being 4th of July, as if if they don't mention it, their people won't know. I don't know. But there was this anxiety of, you know, America, and where is, is America a Christian nation, and, and is the church, how does that plug into that? And because of the anxiety around that, most of the voices that talk about it are on the extremes. Most of the voices that talk about it are on the, the extremes, and the extremes need each other because they have a tendency to vilify one another to encourage the people that agree with them. And because of that, we're in a real season of division, but it's hard to ascertain how divided we really are because the extreme voices are the only ones that are being heard and the nuanced voices in the middle don't talk that much. So as Christians, before we dive into our teaching here, how do we regard our country? How do we think about the nation that we live in? It's too vague of a question. I think you've got to divide it up a little bit. You've got to talk about our nation's function, our nation's people, our nation's purpose, and our place in eternity. So let me just do this little bunny trail before we we get to our series here. In function, largely, the United States has been a blessing to the world. Without pretending it's perfect, we have fed more people, we've given more freedom, we have offered more future to most of the world than probably any other nation, even though there are nations with more resources and more money and more people and in a more strategic location. And it's not ungodly to be proud that we have been able to do that. Have we made mistakes? Yes, we've actually done some nefarious things that weren't just mistakes, they were wrong. But I think as a whole, the earth is better off for the experiment that America has been for the past 245 years. I think our function on the earth has been more good than it has been bad. What about our people? Well, our people are flawed. We have uh, an early history that we have to reconcile with. We have venerated professing Christian founders who were also slave owners. That was wrong. We have recent history that we've got to wrestle with where we offered 
equality in law, but not necessarily in practice. And we have a present that we need to deal with, and all of that links back to our people. We're a country with a blessed function in the world, but with human hands at the wheel. And there will be no perfect leadership on the earth until Jesus rules in Jerusalem. Now, I do get a little nervous when the church exalts a certain political leader with almost a savior-like mentality, like all good comes from them and all bad comes from somebody. We're a flawed nation. And we just kind of pick our flaws and vote them in. I think as a, as a function, we're, we're unique, but as people, we're probably not much different than the rest of the people of the earth. What about our purpose here on the earth? Just like our function in the nations is largely a blessing, I think our purpose is a blessing as well. There were covenants made at the outset of our nation, made by flawed people who probably didn't keep them like they should, but I believe God would still honor those covenants if we kept our our portion of it. 1607, when they were landing at Virginia, they signed the Virginia Compact. All of you remember the dates and who signed what from from school, but you probably didn't really study what the covenant said. And in 1607, they signed a document saying they were landing there to propagate or to expand the gospel, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to take the gospel to people who were lying in darkness and had no knowledge of the one true God. The initial landing on our country repeatedly talked about a missionary endeavor to spread the gospel to the earth. Now, the flawed side of that covenant was on us, not on God, and I think those agreements would still stand if we would lean into our purpose. Finally, what is our place in eternity? You ever think about that? Like, in the grand scheme of things, when we get to the other side and we rule and reign with Jesus, what role did America play? I think we're unique in purpose, but we're not God's favorite. God has a favorite. It's Israel, and we get grafted into that. But just because we're not his favorite doesn't mean we don't have a unique purpose on the earth and that we shouldn't enjoy and be glad about that. So in view of so much criticism, this blessed, flawed, unique in purpose, but not an eternity country, it can be loved and it can be improved. And I just pray this morning, and I just want to take a moment and pray over our nation. I would pray that the United States, really at all civic levels, state, county, city, school board, national, whatever, would be better for the involvement of the church. And that wherever the church puts her hand, we would see the purposes of God expressed. Because I think we've got this unique uh, setting in which tremendous good can take place if we lean into those purposes. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for the, uh, the honor and the privilege to be born in this nation. We acknowledge our flaws. We acknowledge our history that has not always been stellar. We acknowledge our present failings, but yet we see this system and we see this opportunity as a gift And we ask that you would help us to lean into it. And Lord, that everywhere that we put our hand, we would make the system better. Every place that a Christian sits in authority, that that board or that body would benefit from the blessing of the Lord because a believer sat there and represents the purposes of Jesus. Lord, we are citizens of a higher kingdom 
but we recognize our place here on earth in this setting, and we ask that we would represent you well here. In Jesus' name, amen. End of 4th of July announcement, okay? Going into, set, uh, let's see, portion number three of our series, Miracles the Jesus Way. One of my all-time least favorite things to do is to set aside or set together furniture that they promise you is easy to assemble. That is a lie. They tell you that so that you will buy it. But then you open up the instructions and, and the, really, the ones that really bother me are the cocky instructions that give you a time estimate of how long this should could take. So now not only do I have the chore of assembling this thing, I'm against the clock, okay? And maybe you're made of different stuff than I am, but it always takes me longer to assemble than the instructions suggest that it should. So this morning, Miracles Jesus Way, and we're gonna be talking about the Jesus who delays. One of the most confusing things about God is this. There are things that are in the heart of God to do. They're in the word, they're in his heart. You have promises that seem to take longer than they should to happen. Like, they're clearly God's will. You can read about it, you sense it, but yet, you know, the instructions say 40 minutes and here you are an hour later and your battery and your drill is dead and you can't find the chuck and this is taking longer than it should have taken. It is God's will to heal, to restore, and to renew all of the things we believe for. Of course they are. So how come so many are walking around afflicted? How can those things be true and people still be troubled and wrestling with things? If it is God's will to happen, why doesn't it happen quick? I think sometimes we convolute the ideas of quick and good because those two things are not always the same. You know, you can stop in one place and buy a gallon of gas and a hot dog. It's quick, not necessarily good, okay? The gallon of gas you can count on, but that hot dog's been on the roller since the kid put it on there yesterday. Quick and good are not always the same thing. We have learned that we can grab our phone and order something, and it can be delivered sometimes to our house that day. It's quick. But is it good that most of us buy all of our things from the exact same outlet? I don't know, that's probably not good. Just as things that are quick are not necessarily good, there are things that are good that are not always quick. And when God is at work, sometimes it leaves us looking with one eye at God and one eye at what's supposed to happen and going, one of these things is going to move into the same field of vision here. I want to look at two miracles today that involve the strange experience of waiting on God, even though he is moving. First passage, go to Mark chapter 8. I almost said Matthew. Go to Mark chapter 8. I love, love, love this passage. If you've been with us long, you know that uh, uh, deeply impacted by the vineyard movement. I spent a season as a staff pastor at a vineyard church, and that had a dip, deep impact on my ecclesiology and my pneumatology. I was like, what? Did you get that fixed? That sounds like a medical condition. My ecclesiology, which is how we do church. The vineyard values were very, very simple. Not very ornate. Just, just very breakdown simple. That's, I've got a value for that. The pneumatology, or the idea of how we interact with the Holy Spirit. Those are things that were very important in the vineyard and impacted me and, and how we minister greatly. 
There was a season during John Wimber's life, the founder of the vineyard, and even after a while, for a while after his passing, where they saw a remarkable number of healings in their meetings. They would just see every week people healed in their meetings, and they go into multiple meetings during the week, and people healed constantly. And part of this was just a sovereign thing. That's what the Lord was doing in that season. But there was also a measure of healing that increased because they prayed for a lot more people. John used to say, if you pray for five people, you might see somebody healed. If you pray for a thousand, you'll probably see more people healed. Just by numbers, you saw a lot of people healed. The other part, I believe, was a very simple model of praying for people that Wimber taught. And we're probably going to have to revisit this because it was just, it was so good and helped us as we pray for healing for people. And he often would teach out of Mark 8, and he would use this passage, starting in verse 22 through 26, when talking about praying for people, because it involves this unique thing of uh, waiting. Mark 8, 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So here they've got this level of expectation. If we can get him to Jesus, you know, we studied last week, tear the roof off, lower the guy down through the roof so they could be healed. Similar situation. They brought this guy out by the arm, this blind man, and begged, Jesus, touch him. Just, 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 just don't even just touch him. Okay? Huge expectation. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit in his eyes and laid his hands on him, he said, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. What a weird story, isn't it? It's like there are so many weird things here. First of all, Jesus leads him out of the village. Jesus, can you heal him? Can you heal him? Jesus is like, takes him out away from the crowd, almost as if to say, this is just going to be between you and me. I'm not making a public spectacle here. I want to spend time and do something with someone who is dear to me. Some things that God wants to do in your life are meant to be very intimate encounters with him. If you're pressing in for healing or uh, something significant in your life and God's got to break in, let me encourage you, do it in a man, do it in these settings, but don't just do it in these settings. Spend time before the Lord and ask what he would do in your life on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Some things are meant to be a much more intimate encounter. Alan Scott, who's a pastor in the Anaheim Vineyard, uh, recently told his worship leaders something, because they tremendous resource for worship, tons of stuff on YouTube, it's all really good. He said, we have got to spend some of our worship sets with no cameras running and nobody in the room but just our, our worship team, just ministering to the Lord. Not everything is a public moment. Some things we have to do just for him. And in this case, Jesus takes the disciples who were close to him and the man who needed healing, and it's almost as if to say, you know, word will get out when the blind start seeing, but let this just be between you and me. Let's just go off by our side. Especially in a moment where everything seems to be recorded and posted somewhere, the greatest things that Jesus will do in your life will probably be between just you and him. If you want to see Jesus move, follow him out of the village and spend time with him alone. Don't count on it happening here in this laboratory. 
Don't count on it happening just because you asked your prayer. No, spend time alone with him. So the disciples follow him. Now there's a reason for that. Where the teacher goes, the students go. This is not a public event though. And it actually marks a turning in Jesus's ministry from this point. Up until now, he does a, a lot of public miracles. And at this point in his ministry, he begins to shift. He does fewer public miracles, and he does a lot more teaching one-on-one with his disciples. Right after this moment is when it dawns on Peter, and Peter goes, oh, you are the Christ. Immediately after this miracle, Jesus begins to focus more on his disciples. We are drawn to crowds, but we are formed in relationship. Like, we're we're drawn to the big thing, and we just are, and it's fun. But we're honestly, we are formed and discipled more one-on-one. And from this point, he begins to preach and speak differently to his disciples. Shortly after this, he tells them in Mark 8, 31, he tells them that they'd suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests. He is discipling them from this point forward. So Jesus leads him out of town, spits on his eyes. What? I'm sorry. What a strange thing to do. Spits on his eyes, lays hands on him, steps back and goes, see anything? Now, the guy must not have been blind from birth. Okay, because he describes what he sees. He's like, well, I see people, but it looks like trees. If he'd been blind from birth, no idea what a person looks like, no idea what a tree looks like. So he's got some bearing of understanding of what he's talking about. He's like, eh, kind of. It's like, I want to be healed, but are you serious? This is it? And you can almost hear the disciples going, did Jesus heal him? Kind of? What do you mean kind of? How does Jesus kind of heal somebody? Can he heal or can he not heal? Now, those of you who've been with us for a while, you know that I have a tendency to look at things from all angles. And I read backgrounds and commentaries and things of people that I don't necessarily agree with. But when you dive into this passage, you find the craziest explanations for why this happened in two stages. It's almost as if some scholars are embarrassed for Jesus. And they've got to, you know, make up explanations as why Jesus needed to take two whacks at it. Some scholars say that when Jesus spit on his hands and touched him, it was to moisten his eyelids that were matted shut. And that he wasn't actually praying for him. And then once his eyes got open, then Jesus could heal him. It's like Jesus could heal him, but he just couldn't figure out how to take care of those eyes thing first. I don't believe that was it at all. If you're a teacher, you never shut off teacher brain. Okay, you just don't. Those of you who've been a teacher, you teach and you, you think about it all the time. There are just certain, certain jobs that are like that. Um, we have a friend uh, from East Tennessee who was a kindergarten teacher, and she was in New York City on a trip by herself, and she's standing on the curb, and the light turns red, and a man steps off, in a business suit next to her, steps off the curb, and she went, whack, and hit him in the chest and pushed him back. She looked at him, she goes, I'm sorry, I'm a kindergarten teacher. When you're a teacher, you never stop. You're always a teacher. And Jesus is always a teacher. What if Jesus was not only healing here, what if he's actually teaching? What if this healing is one of those examples where Jesus moved exceptionally slowly, not because he was hindered, but because the disciples were watching? 
as a parent or as a teacher, how many times have you slowed down something you could have done more quickly on your own because you wanted someone to understand what you are doing? You know? Made a quesadilla for somebody the other day standing in her kitchen. It's like, okay, here's how you put the butter. I can make a quesadilla quickly. It took me forever to make it because I'm hoping that somebody else can make this quesadilla next time. He does this slowly, I think, to actually reveal things to his disciples. There's a couple of takeaways here that I think he was pressing in. Because he eventually does lay hands on him again and the guy can see fully. Why did it take two stages? I think Jesus is showing his disciples here that persistence in prayer pleases God and results in miracles. Persistence in prayer makes a difference. Jesus would often teach things by displaying them physically and backing them up with stories, and he told some crazy stories to illustrate his point. Tells us one story in in Luke about a widow woman who is only identified by one characteristic. We don't know anything about this woman. The only thing we know about her is she will not quit. Like, that's it. We don't know if she's a sweet old lady. We don't know if she's grumpy. We don't even know if she's right. But Luke 18 says she will not quit. And because of her persistence, she pesters and pesters and pesters a judge who we're told isn't even righteous. And he's suddenly aware that she is going to stop at nothing and he grants her her wishes against her adversary. Now, it's kind of a weird story and it leaves us with a bunch of questions, but then Jesus speaks to the point, Luke 18, 7 and 8. He says, will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him night and day? Will he delay long over them? I will tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Jesus displayed in his ministry and taught in his preaching that persistence in prayer would move the heart of his father. In fact, in his teaching, he finished it up with this question. In Luke 18, he finishes it up with, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith like this on the earth? Will he find people persistently asking and persistently pursuing me? He genuinely asks, when I return, will I find you asking or will I have found you just step back and and just, just waiting for me to do something? What if the person who is struggling with chronic issues is actually serving as an opportunity for us to display the kind of faith that Jesus said he wanted to see when he returned on the earth? It's as if the man who received a partial healing in Jesus tests to see with the disciples, are you still with us? Are you you still hanging in? If it didn't happen immediately, have you abandoned the whole thing or are you sticking with it? So he teaches us that persistence in prayer matters. He also teaches us that progressive miracles, things that happen over time, are still miracles. Back to Mark 8. Now, this is a complicated story. Again, like like I said, he was not blind from birth because he recognizes things. And he says, I see people. Okay, the Lord prayed for me, and I see people, but they're like trees. It's fuzzy. I was hoping for high definition, and I've got not high definition. I got like 2060 in one eye, and if I squint a little bit, this is not, this is not the healing that I imagined. And Jesus lays hands on him again, and when he prays for him again, for whatever reason, for teaching purposes, whatever, he does this in two stages, and he's healed. Does the fact 
that he did it in two stages diminish the miracle? Does the fact that Jesus prayed for him, stepped back, prayed for him again, does that make it less than a miracle? Can you imagine when this guy retells the story, would he say if somebody said, oh, Jesus healed you? He'd go, yeah, but it took him two tries. Do you think the guy who was healed cares? No, because for the rest of this guy's life, his story is, Jesus touched me. Jesus did something. What if he had expressed such a disappointment at the first stage of healing, gets spit in his eyes, and he responded, well, thanks, Jesus. I can kind of see things. I also have spit in my eyes. Why bother to press in? Just because God does things over time does not mean God is not doing the work. Some of you are seeing right now what would have been a miracle five years ago when you started asking for it. Like, you just couldn't imagine five years ago. And God has been working along the way. And if you pan back, you look at it and go, no, this is miraculous. I'm almost too close to it to see. There's a situation, a relationship, family relationship that I, I can look back on right now. And I said, Lord, you have done five years of work in the last six months. But I've been praying for this for years and years and years and years. Does it make it less of a miracle? No, a progressive miracle is as much a miracle as something that happens instantly. For those of you that have struggled for months or years with things, and they have improved a little, but they are far from what needs to happen, do not despise the gradual work of God. Don't be that guy that says, well, he kind of healed me. I could see men like trees, but I wandered off. I lost interest. I quit asking. Zechariah admonished us, not to despise the days of small beginnings. I would attach this idea to it. Don't despise the miracle of sight that starts with men walking as trees. When God is doing something, press in. Don't press away. Ask for more. In that season of rain, when things are starting to happen, ask for more. Some of us have seen a measure of breakthrough. And we said, God, is that it? He's like, just press in. Continue to ask. He says, I even healed a guy in a two-stage system so I would show you that something. That sometimes there is a reason for you to ask and to see change and to ask again and to see more change. Some of us have seen a measure of breakthrough in physical needs or maybe damaged relationships. And we find ourselves frustrated by the lack of the full healing or full restoration of what we think that God should do when a partial answer has been given to us as a token that we would ask for more. Here's the secret. Don't ask at a distance. Grow very intimate in your asking. All that asking over time has a, an effect on our heart as we ask him into our situation. He may be inviting you specifically into a season of asking so that he can draw your heart away from the village to spend time with you alone before he meets your need. So in this first example of the Jesus who delays, we see Jesus healing a man in a two-stage prayer, and he's honoring this idea of persistent prayer and underscoring that progressive miracles are miracles before the Lord. And then he leans back and he watches the man's reaction. Remember, this is the Jesus who had watched and healed 10 lepers and only had one return to him. Your heart's posture before the Lord as he is moving speaks volumes about what he's going to do next. 
I never want to be the guy who says, all right, Lord, you moved, but it wasn't fully what I expected. Because he will turn in a moment and say, what makes you think I was done? What makes you think this is the end all? Let's go to another miracle that took place and happened not quite as quickly as people would have hoped. Sometimes you find people that have waited so long for a miracle, they actually turn on the miracle worker. You know anybody who's prayed for something so long that they're mad at God? <laughs> Some of you are like, mm. okay, yeah, I, I've, I've done that. We've, we've all been there. John 11, 1 and 2. There was a certain man, ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it was Martha who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. There's a key bit of information here that is revealed when you read the whole story. It's not that Lazarus is ill, it's just that he's still alive, okay? It's not that things are bad, it's that things could get worse. If you are Mary or Martha, who had been sacrificially giving to the Lord and supporting him and worshiping him publicly... You've anointed Jesus with oil, you've cooked for him, you've hosted him. You go into this with high expectations of a quick response that would be natural and rational to think, okay, he's going to move here very quickly. And Jesus replies with a cryptic answer that sounds and is good news, although they're going to misunderstand it for a while. They say to him, or Jesus says to them in the next verse, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. They're like, oh, good, okay, this illness does not lead to death. In a sense, Jesus prophesies here, and it's that the, you know, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus, so he is speaking the future. He said, I will be glorified through what is about to happen here. To a believer, this is prophecy. This illness will not lead to death. Let me tell you, as a believer, that is true of all of your illnesses. You say, what about people who die? Ultimately, they don't. They live. And that's how Jesus is speaking here. But to Mary and Martha, it sounds like he's going to heal him. Sometimes the word of the Lord leads us to believe one thing when in fulfillment it means another. It doesn't mean it's not the word of the Lord. It's just he sees the beginning from the, or sees the end from the beginning. Charles Spurgeon said, when the Lord speaks of things, he doesn't speak of them as they be or even as they are at the present moment. He speaks of them as they are in the long run. That's why it's vital to hold fast to what he speaks to you because it is the ultimate truth, although you don't know what you're going to go through to get there. One of the lessons you learn in adulthood is never to say what else could happen. How many, how many of you ever said, what else could happen, and then it happened? You're like, okay, I will never say what else could possibly happen again. You have no idea. And Mary and Martha are going, oh, Lazarus is sick. What else could happen? Well, Jesus could take his own sweet time, and Lazarus could die. Yet in that season of delay, it is for God to be magnified through us. What, what, what did he say there? Since an illness doesn't lead to death, so the Son of God may be magnified through it. Think about that. The God of the universe. Just put pause. 
The God of the universe that scoops the stars in his hands, places planets in orbit, creates everything, that God can be magnified through your life. What is magnified? Made to appear even larger. He can be mag- That is a crazy idea. The God that looked at Saturn and said, put rings on it. It'll look cool. Kids will love it. The God who space, you know, put some of the stars in a shape. It'll drive people crazy. They'll, they'll see him in the sky. The God who did all that can be made to look bigger through your actions and your life. He can be magnified through your life. That's a crazy thought. And it happening primarily hinges on how we respond when we are in need and we think he is taking too long. Our response to him, that's what magnifies him. Verse five, now Jesus loved Martha and his, her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, okay, I love this, he loves them and he hears Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? He heard he was ill, he loves them, hung around two more days. In your life, no matter what it feels like, Jesus is not running late, okay? He's not running late because he had a higher plan for Lazarus than what his sisters were even asking for. And Jesus is thinking, I could go heal him. And if I did, the Pharisees would say, well, he probably got better anyway. Or I can wait till he's dead. And if I wait till he's dead, they get a story like they could never imagine. Some of us have watched things die. Dreams, visions, things that are hard to do, and flatter than a pancake, dead. They lingered for a while. They were sick. You begged God to visit them, and he waited two more days. And they're dead. They do that so that when Jesus resurrects them, you have a story that you never, ever could have had if you would have turned it around while there was still life in it. Verse 11 says, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now I go to awaken him. He's using a euphemism now. Lazarus is really dead. And the disciples said, oh Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. He's like, he's resting. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he had meant he was resting in sleep. Then Jesus told him plainly, how many times Jesus had to go, okay, I had to just make it really simple for you. No, Lazarus has died. He's died, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. He said, no, I could have gone when he was sick. I could have resurrected your idea when it was still had a little life in it. I could have pulled you out of that situation while it still looked like you had something in you, but I waited till it died. Now let's go. And Thomas one of the disciples, is so distraught over this. There's always this one melodramatic guy. Let us also go so that we may die with him. That's not a statement of loyalty or misunderstanding. This is like Eeyore to the nth degree. Take some comfort in this. There were disciples that followed Jesus around that still didn't know what Jesus was doing. Verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming... She went and she met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. 
Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now when Mary came to her where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's in verse 32. You've got to give Mary credit. She's a tremendously honest prayer life. Like she just speaks what's on her heart. She didn't hold anything back. She didn't hold her worship back, and she didn't hold back her pain. That is actually to her credit and to her benefit. Because Jesus is God enough to deal with your disappointment in any situation. Don't feel like you need to say one thing to Jesus and something else internally. Remember last week we did discover he does read our minds. He knows what we're thinking anyway. It's actually healthier to tell him what you're feeling than it is to try and couch it for him. And verse 33, I think, is one of the most beautiful verses about the character of Jesus. Remember what Jesus knows right now. Lazarus is dead, and he is about to raise him from the dead, okay? So Jesus has an understanding of what's going to happen here. Yet in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And Jesus said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Even knowing the end from the beginning, even knowing that in a moment he's going to call Lazarus out. Even though he's thinking, okay, hold on, in a minute it's going to get better. Jesus wept. Jesus has a heart that grieves for you in your hurting, even though he is able and willing and ready to alleviate the cause of your pain. That's how much he loves us. If you needed encouragement, do a study of how many times Jesus was moved with compassion. Even though it was completely in his power and he very often changed the circumstances afterwards, he was moved by the hurt in your heart. That thing that is causing great pain in your hurt, the, the Lord weeps over that even though he sees the way forward. Even though he's looking five years down the road, it's going to be different. He is weeping because you're hurting. He is in pain because of your pain. Most of you know I lost a sister when I was 12. She was 19 years old, killed in a car wreck. Just a, a tragic, tragic time. And I remember my father talking about it years later. And of course the house was full of people and my dad would talk about it for years later. Dad was, was, uh, was not a public speaker, was not, uh, would never, just super uncomfortable in front of people. But he always said, I never remembered what anybody said, but I remembered who was there. I remembered who came and sat with me in my weeping when I couldn't do anything but cry. Jesus comes, even though resurrection power in his life comes to you in your pain and says, I'm going to sit with you. I'm going to change circumstances, but it's not okay that you're hurting even though I'm fixed it in a minute. There's something as a parent when you know you can fix things and your kids are crying about something, you can, you can just, ah, quit crying, we're going to fix it in a minute. Don't cry over spilled milk. To God, everything's spilled milk. He can fix anything. And yet he weeps with us in our weeping. 
Jesus is not rattled by what you perceive as an unfixable situation, but he is moved by the pain of your heart, and it hurts him to see you hurt. When you are in pain, it is a gift to your spirit that you have someone join you there. And even in his compassion, the critics are split here, and some of them are critical of Jesus. Verse 36, so the Jews said, oh, see how he loved them. Look, he's weeping. See how he must have loved them. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? So some of the Jews are critical here. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Just stop for just a second. What's going through Jesus' mind here? Knowing his future, knowing he would be crucified, knowing he would be put in a cave like this and the stone would be rolled against it. He says, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there's going to be an odor. He's been dead four days. Even Martha and Mary have lost all hope. Jesus has hope for your situation when yours has run out. Some of you right now have been thinking of things that you've been asking and asking and asking for. You finally quit asking. You're between that stage one and stage two. Yeah, I see men walking as trees, but it's not what I'd hoped for. And you've lost hope and you've given up. Jesus still has hope for those situations. And he says in verse 40, did I not tell you you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around. Remember, once a teacher, always a teacher. So that they might believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let them glow. I want to ask if Josiah and Lima would join me again real quickly for a moment. Jesus had done miracles before. There was a high level expectation going in this. But what he had not done before, what makes this one stand out, is delayed his action in order that they would see the full extent of his power and his love. And that he would be glorified in their lives. The highest focus of your life, it's hard to imagine because we've been raised in America where freedom and uh, self means so much, but the highest focus of your life is not your ease. The highest focus of your life is in that how you would walk out the situations of your life that Jesus would be glorified and that he would be magnified. And some of you are wrestling with situations now where you've seen partial movement or no movement. And he is saying, will you press in and continue to ask for more? Because if you will, I will be glorified if your response is correct. Mary and Martha were tenacious. But even they were ready to give up. But they saw the fullness of God expressed after a season of delay. Stand with me for a moment.